dulcet tones of Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass means it's time for another edition of Fangraphs Audio. Today on Fangraphs Audio, I'm joined for a roundtable discussion by Fangraphs editor Dave Cameron, and in addition, a, another monolithic figure in baseballing analysis, Jonah Carey. On the show today, we discuss Dave Cameron's article with regard to some questions that might be appearing soon in sabermetric research. Uh, we look at Theo Epstein's askance comments on UZR. We consider the importance or the role of Twitter in reporting. And finally, uh, we look at some over-under numbers from VegasWatch.net. We discuss all that and more on this week's edition of Fangraphs Audio. Welcome to Fangraphs Audio. Uh, once again, we offer you a roundtable discussion. Today on the roundtable is a familiar voice to the roundtable. He's the editor of Fangraphs, editor of USS Mariner, contributor to the Wall Street Journal. His name is Dave Cameron. Dave, hello. I'm good. How are you, Carson? I'm, I'm well. I'm very well. And uh, I think you and I are about to be better because another man who's joining us is a former contributor to Baseball Prospectus, current contributor to the Wall Street Journal, a man who is currently writing a book about the Tampa Bay Rays. His name is Jonah Carey. Carson, Dave, good to be here. Good. It's exciting. It's an exciting time for all of us. Uh, and, uh, speaking of exciting times, Dave Cameron, this week on the blog, you sort of did a, a two-part post. Uh, uh, in the first part, you, you were fielding questions, and then the second part, uh, you were sort of digesting the responses, uh, the pretty excellent responses from our wide readership. Can you maybe tell us about that, that process and then the, the questions that you sort of came up with and, uh, and I guess their relationship with each other is what you see as being the, uh, in this case, what was the future of sabermetrics, I'm calling it. You probably have a smarter name for it. Well, this actually all came out of a conversation that David Appleton and I were having, I don't know, back in January or something, where I was telling him that I felt like part of what we did at Fangraphs is every day we were answering a lot of questions, but I didn't know how many we were actually asking. We were constantly trying to solve problems that people had pointed out that they were one and solved, but I wasn't sure how many problems we were identifying that should be solved or that should at least be thought about. So I wanted to do a couple of posts where we just talked about, like, hey, you know, we, we value players and we try and figure out uh, what goes into making one player better than another. We do a lot of that. But what what other things should we be looking at and what areas should we be exploring that maybe you've just gone under-noticed? Under and so some of the things that, I, that came up in the comments and that I had thought about were um, really specifically how players interact with one another. I mean, like, there's been studies on, like, the protection theory and how players can maybe get better pitches if they have a good hitter everything behind them, but there hasn't been a whole lot of work done on, say, how a pitching staff may develop differently if they have good defenders versus bad defenders. Like, if you're a 21-year-old pitch-to-contact hurler and you've got, like, nine Adam Dunn's behind you, I can imagine that's going to do a train wreck on your confidence where, you know, if you're pitching for, like, the Mariners or the Rays or one of these really good defensive teams, perhaps you're more willing to throw strikes. And, you know, so it could have a, a development a impact on pitching. You know, that's just something that hasn't really been studied. So I was just throwing out some ideas and getting some ideas from the readers on maybe some of the questions that we should start looking at in order to find new thoughts and new ways to look at baseball. Now, Jonah, I know that uh, you, you've worked closely with at least one front office, and as a man on the baseball scene, you probably have some pretty good knowledge of other ones. What's your sense of what's going on in front offices with these sorts of questions and maybe what we know in the public? You know, my impression of front offices is that they are, uh, the good ones anyway, are inquisitive by nature. That is, you know, uh, Dave talked about the fact that, that he and uh, other Dave, Dave Appleman, just got involved in a conversation just kind of randomly and got into some good stuff. And I think that 
a lot of the common traits of good front offices are the same as the common traits of paper nutrition. Now, in some cases, the twain meet. So one of the people um, who I've worked with in the past, uh, Keith Wolner, a baseball perspective, he wrote an article called The Hilbert Question, which was over a decade ago now. Uh, and he asked, you know, just some seminal questions that ended up subsequently getting answered, by the way, by the next generation of paper nutritions, uh, but just a bunch of questions about baseball. And he now works for the Cleveland Indians, who, uh, one of the organizations that most definitely are asking questions all the time. And, you know, no coincidence that Keith is part of it. And I think that you see that to some extent where someone like him or someone like Dan Fox or anybody that's been involved on the front lines uh, doing sabermetric work on the web and in other places, if they get hired by teams, that's a sign both that they're going to be in charge of doing things like that and that their bosses have that kind of open mind. So it's not its not even just the that would do it. I think any general manager, even if he's not a big stat head, but if he's just kind of intellectually curious and, and uh, wants to improve his operations, wants to improve his scouting and everything, they're going to ask things. So think about anything that's been successful, you know, the last decade, there's probably a pretty good chance that they're asking questions that uh, are, are very interesting and very informative and, and maybe that the rest of us haven't quite thought of yet. Dave, uh, Dave Cameron, is that your impression as well uh, about what the, what's going on in front offices? Yeah, I think uh, definitely in some, maybe not in all. I think there are probably some front offices where, uh, you know, they, they like their way of doing things, and you know. Um, but I get the sense that there are definitely teams. Uh, Tampa's obviously one of them, but, you know, I know some people in Seattle pretty well, and this is uh, this new way of thinking about things and not being constrained to what they learned 20, 30 years ago is a popular sentiment at the moment. I think uh, especially with the Yankees and Red Sox have decided to flex their financial payroll by hiring smart people as well as going after good players, the advantage of being smart has been uh, diminished a little bit. For the, it's tough for the A's now to outsmart the Red Sox, the Yankees, and they have a $100 million payroll gap to overcome. So you, you almost have to come up with new ways of thinking because now that the Yankees are on, to, on base percentage and the Red Sox are on the defense, uh, if you're going to beat them, you need some new things that maybe they haven't thought of yet. So I think there are a lot of these um, smaller payroll teams that have to think of new ways to, to beat these bigger teams because otherwise they have no advantage. Well, how are they going to do it? Uh, if they can't outsmart them and they can't outspend them, well, I, well maybe if you knew the answer, you would be <laughs> uh, you would be the smartest GM in baseball right now. I mean, do, are there any inefficiencies left to exploit? Is there stuff out there we just don't know? Uh, I think there absolutely is. Uh, it's not, I'm not trying to say they can't outsmart them. I'm just trying to say they can't outsmart them using what is kind of considered traditional sabermetrics at this point, like on-base percentage and now defense. And like these things that are widely talked about in the public, you're not going to outsmart the Yankees or Red Sox by using those things. So, you, you know, like the Mariners have just done this thing where they hired Marcus Elliott to basically revamp their entire weight conditioning program and gotten rid of their entire weight room because they kind of see conditioning and keeping players healthy as a frontier. Now, whether it's like going to work or not, who knows? But this is something that they've clearly identified of a chance for them to keep their players healthy and get an advantage that way. And there's certainly things like that where teams are exploring opportunities in order to find inefficiencies. And there will never not be an inefficiency. We just might not know what it is right now. Right. Now, uh, Dave Cameron, you had an opportunity to be on what I have to think is probably one of the most entertaining 10 or 12 minutes of television I've ever seen in my entire life, uh, which is Jim Bowden's GM Corner. Um, in said episode of GM Corner, uh, Theo Epstein mentioned a proprietary system called Carmine. Now, I assume that things like this are going along in uh, front offices as well. Um, I, man, I guess my question is also with regard to, to Theo is he kind of made a, a uh, I don't know how you say it, an askance reference to, uh, to UZR. 
this past week. He said, uh, in, with regard to Jacoby Ellsbury, there's a certain number the Sox don't use that is accessible to people online. That had Ellsbury is one of the worst defensive center fielders in baseball last year. Now, of course, he goes on to say that they had Jacoby Ellsbury above average. Uh, you know, you're you're a guy at Fangraphs. <laughs> How do you react to that? And 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 because well, there, it seems like there were other systems too that had him below average. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things, you know, obviously Theo is aware of UVR, so it's not like it's some metric he's never heard of. I, I think it's kind of a little bit humorous that he wouldn't mention it by name, and maybe he just, for whatever reason, he didn't want to uh, t- target it as a, as a statistic of no use, because in this one case, the Jacoby Ellsbury UVR rating is controversial. Ellsbury has been a scout favorite for years. He's fast. He runs well. His prior year UVRs have been very good, so it's not like the entire stat head community is in agreement that Jacoby Ellsbury is terrible and the Red Sox are out on a limb thinking that he's good. But I will also suggest that, you know, maybe the UVR isn't totally crazy considering that Theo Epstein then moved Jacoby Ellsbury to left field. So, like, if UVR or whatever metrics that the Red Sox are using, uh, apparently they're coming to the same conclusions because UVR loves Adrian Beltre, who the Red Sox signed. Uh, it loves Mike Cameron, who the Red Sox signed. It hates Jason Bay, who they let leave. And then it's not as big a fan of Jacoby Ellsbury, who's now moved out of a premium defensive position. So whether Theo Epstein is using UVR or uh, some Carmine version of UVR, apparently they're giving him the same answers because he's doing what UVR thinks uh, he should be doing. Not that anyone's saying that Jacoby Ellsbury really is a terrible defensive center fielder. I mean, one year of defensive stats is not enough to make a conclusion on anyway. But I do think it's interesting that he would disparage UVR while at the same time doing what UVR may suggest that should have been done anyway. So, Jonah, um, as a journalist, you're pretty savvy to, uh, my guess is, the way that a front office, uh, you know, the head of a front office like Theo Epstein might, you know, how he might tell one thing to the Dennis and Callahan show in the Boston area while secretly in-house maybe having some numbers to the contrary. Is this, to you, is this a PR situation, or do you think that Carmine really does say something different about Jacoby Ellsbury? I think, as we all know, Theo Epstein tells all the secrets to Dennis and Callahan show. I mean, that is the number one way to run an operation. And there's nobody that breaks more news or more secrets than Dennis and Callahan show in Boston. The number one media broadcast in Western civilization. But uh, that aside, there are teams that are secretive in, in that way, too. Many teams are like that, and it's practical as well. So if you look at Tampa Bay Rays, their main guys, Andrew Friedman, Matt Silverman, they might be out there, and they might be giving quotes that they're actually not saying a lot. And then some of the people that are crunching numbers, James Click, Eric Neander, some seriously smart people, Josh Koch, by the way, another uh, Sabre metric darling who got a job in a front office. Those people aren't typically quoted too much on the record as talking about deep secrets within the Rays organization. And it, it, it makes a lot of sense. It's not only that you don't want to give away certain secrets, the secret sauce of what you're doing, but it's also practical in terms of the value of your players. So, for instance... Theo is making all these comments about Jacoby Ellsbury. So, number one, uh, Dave made a good point about Mike Cameron. I would also argue that Mike Cameron is such a good center fielder anyway that almost anybody being moved over is not necessarily a slap in the face against them. But to the further the point about Ellsbury, let's say the Red Sox want to trade Ellsbury this season, which is another question, by the way. They have several good outfield prospects, and they have some potential room. They could put Reddick there. Later on, they could put Westmoreland there. So, Ellsbury, I would think, if I had to guess, I would say that he won't be a Red Sox two years from now. So, okay, that's the case. Now they need to build this guy's value. If people are out there saying, oh, he had a minus 19 UZR last year, he stinks defensively, that's going to lower his value. So Theo's job to change the conventional wisdom, make it seem like Ellsbury is a good fielder, in addition to being a pretty good on-base guy who can steal bases, and that way when the time comes to make a trade or do whatever with him, 
he will have a little bit more leverage. So it, it is very practical in some ways to not only be secretive, but to kind of bend the truth, stretch the truth, or say things that oppose what the conventional wisdom might say, even if the conventional wisdom is right. So, Jonah, is it, is it, I mean, it's almost to an organization, for example, in this case, the Rays, or we could talk about the Red Sox. You did mention a guy like uh, James Click or another guy who's in the background. My guess is that the media doesn't really care about those guys because they're not—they aren't like the face of the organization. If you have an interview with uh, James Glick, it's James Glick, right? Am I saying it? Click. Click. Okay, fine. I'll say James Click from now on. If you say James Click, okay. uh, if you say James Click, it's not like the, uh, the 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 Post Gazette in Tampa or whatever, or the Boston Globe is running to like essentially the the nerdy guys in the back office. That almost works to a, to a team's advantage, doesn't it? I, it absolutely does, you know, and a couple of things out of that. Number one, if I, you know, and maybe my sensibilities are different, but if I was the beat writer for the Tampa Bay Rays, I would be very interested in what those guys had to say because I would do a little digging and it would be pretty obvious that there are people working behind the scenes doing cool stuff. Not to say that Andrew Friedman isn't smart in his own right and doesn't think about things very in an interesting way, but just look at who they've hired and then you start to look around at other teams and you just have to go to MLB.com and start looking at the roster front office and say, well, this guy works for this person, this guy works for this person. I know these guys are pretty smart and I think that there could be more done with that. And to the second point that people don't care, I really hope people do care because a good chunk of my book is talking about this kind of hidden side of the Rays and, and just baseball teams in general that uh, they do, they have hired smart people who are doing some really cool stuff behind the scenes. And uh, and the fact that they are secretive is kind of part and parcel of it too. They like the way it's set up this way, uh, you know. But I guess maybe people like me, my job is to try to expose it a little bit, not necessarily to screw a team over. Certainly not the Rays, because you know, that's not what I'm trying to do. But at the same time, to just make it clear that hey, they're doing some cool stuff, and 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 other people should know about it. So all right, so Dave Cameron, I, I'm going to sense that you you probably have a pretty good idea of how this works in the Mariners, maybe some other front offices too. Do you sort of see, and I, th- I feel like you've said this before, um, Jack Jurenchik, he he's sympathetic to the sabermetric community, certainly, to asking the right questions, but he's also this kind of scouty fi- figurehead. So it's not like the sort of Paul de Podesta um, nerd figure at the top of the team. Uh, I mean, do you see this happening with the Mariners and other teams too, where the GM is more of a figurehead, and then there are other stuff going on behind the scenes that, you know, in your case, the you know the Seattle uh, uh, PI or whatever isn't going to get to the bottom of. Well, I, I think the Seattle is interesting because I, I wouldn't describe Jack Sorensic as a figurehead. He's definitely an old school scout who's uh, you know earned his way up through uh, being a scouting director and drafts and really. You know, hitting the hitting the pass and finding the teenagers, and um, but he is a, an extremely smart guy. So this, let's not paint Jack Sorensic as like a rube who is uh, you know hiding all these smart guys in the background. And I do think it's interesting in Seattle, maybe because of U.S.S. Mariner and some of these statistically focused blogs, and we've shined a light on Tony Blangino and some of what the Mariners are doing. Tony actually uh, speaks to the media quite a bit, and so the, the Mariners stats guys aren't quite as much hidden in the background as they are maybe in Tampa and Boston and Cleveland and other places um, where, you know, Blangino actually does talk to the Seattle Times. and um, So I think that Seattle's a little bit different, but I do think that maybe uh, an interesting way to go forward in the future is kind of how the Rays did it and how the Mariners have done it. Well, the Rays, you know, they hired Jerry Hunsaker at the same time. They hired Andrew Friedman, and Hunsaker kind of gave them a little bit of, uh, I don't know what you want to call it, street cred, but uh, scout cred maybe. Uh, where it's not just a 30-year-old Ivy League guy running everything, and all the guys who have been working in baseball for 20 years are mad at him, but you really have a guy like, you know, Lindsay Rensick fills this role where it's uh, someone whose baseball men respect, 
completely. And so when he says things like, hey, let's not get some free swingers and get guys to get on base and let's value defense and, you know, let's think about things in a different way, it's, it's not coming across like this not those kid who doesn't know what he's talking about. Yeah, and, and I mean, a guy like Blangino, do you see him as someone who could survive as a GM or would, would people just be on his butt from the very beginning? Well, I, I think one of the interesting things is, uh, and maybe we've missed this quote in Sabermetrics, is thinking that every guy who understands sabermetric principles and how to value a player can be a good GM. This has nothing to do with Tony necessarily, but, uh, you know, the role is general manager. So really, like, the key part of it is being able to manage people and get people to work hard for you. And, you know, if you surround yourself with good people, it's really hard to make bad deals. So if you've got a, a good advising team, they're not going to let you trade for you in the FD bet in court. You know, like, uh, and that's kind of the key. And so I think, um, not to say that Tony Blangino couldn't be a good general manager, but I don't think that my primary quality that I would look for in a GM is ability to calculate WOBA or FIP. I would want them to understand uh, kind of the concepts behind those and uh, hire people that understand those concepts. But I, I don't think that I would be using those as filters for my GM. I would want someone who can really manage people and get my organization to work hard for me. Now, Jonah, one thing we're kind of discussing here is, I guess, the interaction between... Uh, the media, uh, the way the stories are presented to the public, and then the front office, right? And we're talking about, uh, you know, someone like Drenzik, who who is a more of a manager of people and is able to to get his to get the media to get fans maybe to believe in these concepts. Um, you wrote an, an interesting article on your on your uh, website jonahcarry.com about um, nine nine sports figures who you thought should have Twitter accounts. Okay. Um, now, obviously, Twitter is being used in a number of ways to report information about baseball. Um, beyond just these nine figures who you'd like to see, I'm sort of curious as to your thoughts on the way Twitter has changed sports reporting, the way it's best used as sports reporting, or the ways it shouldn't be used for sports reporting. Well, the way it should be used, first of all, is uh, you certainly do want to put information out there. It's just news cycles have gotten shorter and shorter. It's the same way that, you know, at first we had only newspapers, and then when TV came along and you had the ability to break news on TV, of course you were going to do it. You know, if you could do it on the radio, of course you were going to do it. It was quicker. Why would you sit on something? You could still have more thoughtful, uh, you know, feature-length commentary in the newspaper the next day, but, you know, if you want to get something out quick, you could do it that way. And so this is even writ smaller, where you're putting something out in 140 words, your thoughtful commentary might be 500 words, but that's still much longer than, sorry, 140 characters. 500 words is still much longer than 140 characters, and it might come out 30 minutes later instead of a day later. So all we're doing is shortening the cycle. So I think that's one good way to do it. And I think another good way is you have to kind of pick your spots between what is director's cut kind of stuff that got cut from a movie, got cut from an article for a reason, and stuff that's kind of not, it doesn't exactly fit within the narrative of the story that you're writing, but it's interesting nonetheless. Now, there's some minutia that's being reported from spring training. We're saying, oh, so-and-so reported, here's the backup catcher, here's the assistant bullpen coach. I think that's a little much. But when you start getting into just little details, and you know, I think that stuff can be interesting, and even if it doesn't go in your main uh, pieces that you're writing, it can, be, it can be good stuff. And I think that you have to keep in mind something about baseball, too. There's still a lot of romantic aspect to it. It's very, you know, when spring training starts, people just get very excited if they're a baseball fan, and, oh, I wonder what it's like in Florida, and it seems like this kind of faraway mystical land. And, you know, if you're showing uh, the hot young prospect, a lefty starter, and, you know, he's throwing off a mound, and he's wearing shirt sleeves, and it's 75 degrees, and you've got a little quick pick of it, that's still pretty cool. I think people still react to that stuff, and not everybody has the means or the will or the, the time to go down to uh, Florida or Arizona 
to check this stuff out, and, and you're doing the work for them. So that's all right. You know, I think anything that that adds to the element of uh, of consumption that that really makes it more interesting to fans. It's good and should be fair game, and these people should be doing it, and good for them for doing it. Dave Cameron, I know you're on Twitter. Um, you're you're an active participant. Uh, what what are the I guess what are the Twitter feeds that you sort of react to the best? What are the ones that you like to follow, especially from a baseballing point of view? Um, well, you know, I think like me, the interesting ones are people who have things to say that I would not otherwise get hear their thoughts on that matter. So, like maybe last year, my favorite example is. Uh, the Gold Gloves come out, and uh, Franklin Gutierrez is not awarded a Gold Glove. Not all that shocking because we didn't hit that well, and we all know that you know batting average is the number one criteria for a Gold Glove award. And uh, C.J. Wilson, I think, sent out a Twitter message saying something along the lines of, "Oh, maybe he only made amazing catches when we played Texas." Like, you know, it's a a non-Seattle player commenting on the uh, how he feels a particular competitor got screwed out of a defensive award in a sarcastic and ironic way uh, kind of drives home the point of like, hey, even the players realize these awards are kind of a joke. And it kind of is a different spin on the old, like, don't worry about the gold glove award voting um, because it comes from somebody that we would have never heard from before. Like, there's no way uh, a beat writer is going to get a quote from C.J. Wilson about Franklin Gutierrez not winning a gold glove. Like, they would never even think to ask C.J. Wilson. But he had an interesting and pithy thing to say. And so I thought that was a good example of how Twitter can actually add new things that aren't just, you know, links to news stories or, um, you know, people asking us to read something that they've written on their blog. Do, do you think it's necessary? Arthur, can I jump in on that for a second? Absolutely, Jonah Carey. You win. Yes, so uh, what I was going to say was, it's a great point by Dave, and I think it, it, it underscores the types of players. You know, we talk about athletes that are on Twitter. Okay, so Shaq is on, and all that stuff is very entertaining. But in the baseball sphere, I think of a guy like C.J. Wilson, Pat Neshek, uh, you know, someone who's really embraced the blogging for a while, and he keeps embracing social media. Nick Hayhurst, right? I mean, so he's got a book, and he's out there. He calls himself the Garfoos, right? And he's got this mystical character commenting. And, you know, and it's fun, and it's interesting, and it's different. And I think what it does for these players is, uh, and I'm not trying to denigrate their ability, and I hope that they go on to make tens of millions of dollars and they can do whatever they want afterwards. But if they're not superstars, it raises their profile in a way and it really helps them out personally. So maybe they get a book deal later. You know, maybe we can learn more of their thoughts. And it turns out that they're interesting writers and interesting people. And I just think that the way uh, baseball reporting or sports reporting is done in general, it's the guy that rushes for 100 yards or throws four touchdowns or hits three home runs or, uh, you know, scores three or four goals. It's always going to be those players that are going to be interviewed most often. Just because someone has the most ability doesn't mean they're the most interesting. In fact, I would argue that often that is not the case. And, and I love the fact that we're getting some of these less heralded athletes out there in, on Twitter, on blogs, uh, just giving us their thoughts because it's really interesting. Fernando Perez, by the way, Tampa Bay Rays, he's running for the freaking New York Times. And he's a fascinating guy who went to Columbia, but he's probably the, uh, I don't know, 31st most talented uh, player uh, you know, who could be on the Major League roster this year. So I love this stuff. I think it's great and it's really interesting for fans. Yeah, now Jonah, uh, on that point, uh, I remember, uh, let's see, last year about this time, I was excited about baseball and I read uh, Bob Euchre's uh, memoir, I guess, Catcher in the Rye, Rye, W-R-Y, um, right. And in that book, it's just full of these like you know these crazy uh, anecdotes, uh, you know mostly concerning drinking. I think there's a one point where he's on a pontoon boat, and uh, he and his friend are drinking, and they get thrown off into a Florida marsh. Um, oh boy! <laughs> uh, which is probably not something you'd want to come out publicly, especially if you are a player. Of course, for someone of Bob Euchre's caliber, uh, it probably wouldn't have mattered. Um, I'm wondering, though, it does seem as though the way that the characters are portrayed, or maybe it's the way the players portray themselves, it does seem as though 
there's some incentive, especially for the best ones, to have this flatter public persona. Now, of course, the interesting thing with a Fernando Perez or Dirk Harris is that they're allowed to, you know, they have these virtues, right? But do you think that, that in this particular media era, that it's just there's only the advantage to have that flatter persona, especially in, in the most public forms of media? Well, I mean, I think you can make that case, unless it goes against you. I mean, Tiger Woods is obviously a classic example. He just tried to make himself this vision of professionalism and just kind of this dull guy and we don't know anything about his social life and his uh, personal life. And what ends up happening is, I think, obviously a lot of the reason there was a scandal is because he's so famous and because he's so good at what he does, but I think it's also that he was so, so private. If we had an inkling that this guy was a little bit of a player, maybe it wouldn't have been such a, I don't know what you want to say, shock or such a, so widely reported. I don't know. Maybe I'm being naive and it was just anybody famous. If anything happens, it's going to go down that way. But I feel like when you bottle yourself up and when you really don't tell anybody anything about yourself and you're good and you're, you're high profile, or you're, at least your performance is high profile, you open yourself up to that possibility of a backlash. So if a TMZ or whatever does catch you either literally or figuratively with your pants down, uh, <laughs> then that can backfire. So it kind of cuts both ways. You know, if you invite people in a little bit, Maybe you win their favor. You know, I think that uh, the media doesn't love it when they're shut out or when they feel they're getting nothing but canned quotes. I feel like they've treated A-Rod a little uh, poorly because of that reason. Now, you could argue there are other things going on with A-Rod, but I think part of it is that he just seems so bland that people didn't like him. You know, there are two ways that you can really cheese off the media. Number one, which I think is worse, is if you're a jerk. So I think that Barry Bonds, you say whatever you want about Barry Bonds, but he was never nice to the media, and that didn't help when kind of the stuff hit the fan later on because people were like, this guy's a jerk to me, I'm going to bury him. But I think the number two way, maybe to a lesser extent, but I think that's true too, is if you tell them nothing, if you just give only platitudes and nothing goes down, then if something goes wrong, nobody's going to have your back either because you didn't give them good quote. It's unfortunate that the media wields that kind of influence, but I think that's just the way it is. And I think if you're an athlete, I would advise any athlete who has any kind of significant role to go get media training. Any CEO does it. If you're some guy in the major leagues or in any other sport, why not do it? Just spend, I don't know, a couple grand and go do that. I mean, there's a lot at stake. Uh, both financially and both in terms of your reputation, if you, if you don't. Right, right. And then meanwhile, uh, you know, Charles Barkley can do basically, and he can get into bar fights and uh, solicit prostitutes, and he still has a job uh, as a media personality, and uh, he does spots which, right. by the way, are the most unintentionally hilarious spots for Taco Bell now. Uh, <laughs> that box does rock. Um, yeah, okay, so this is now we've entered the sordid part of the show. Um, and, and why not? Why not? Let's keep going, uh, Dave Cameron. You uh, yeah. you invoked the scourge of gambling on uh, the Fangraphs website this past week. You were looking at some over unders. I think VegasWatch.net had published some, and you asked the question: Why does Vegas hate the Twins? Uh, I guess a couple yeah. things. Why does Vegas hate the Twins? And number two, uh, what are some maybe other over unders that you see as uh, possibly? Not that again. Not that we would ever condone it, but uh, but just in terms of a of general consensus type thing, where do you see is the public being off from what what's probable? Right, right. Not that I would ever suggest that anyone gamble on anything. I I looked at it more along the lines of uh, you know what is, what do Vegas think that people think about things? Because obviously Vegas is setting up these lines in order to induce bets one way or another, and so I kind of look at them as a proxy of like what does Vegas see the perception of these teams at? 
And so it's not even so much why does Vegas hate, but why does Vegas think people don't think the Twins are any good? Because I look at the Twins and I say, they were not a bad team last year, and they substantially upgraded this winter. Not that you want to look at, like, last year's record plus offseason adjustments as the way to project a team, but that is how most fans do it. And so if you're Vegas and you're thinking that, like, most fans are going to look at last year's Twins team that won the division with 87 years, games and added Orlando Hudson and J.J. Hardy and Jim Tomey and, you know, they're, they got some good players uh, and you think they're going to get worse. Like, to me, that was an odd, I, I, I honestly don't understand the 82 <laughs> over-under for the Twins. I would take the over in, you know, with like gummy bears or some kind of uh, non-monetary gambling <laughs> uh, effect. But, you know, I, I would, uh, you know, I think the 82 is quite a low figure for the Twins, and so. Um, but I, so there's a few others that stuck out. I think the Dodgers at 84. Uh, the Dodgers, to me, are clearly the best team in the National League West by a, a significant margin. Uh, they can beat the Padres 84 times. I mean, like I think that that's a really low number. Uh, Houston at uh, 77 seems wildly optimistic to me. That apparently means that like. Uh, you know, they're going to get a lot of saves from Brandon Lyon or something. I don't know. I don't think the Astros are going to win 77 games. He's a proven he's a proven veteran, Dave Cameron. What do you have against Brandon Lyon? Well, uh, other than the fact that he's not good, <laughs> I, you know, I, I know that he's pro- proven to be mediocre, but uh, that does not mean I want him pitching in the ninth inning of close games. Not that the uh, Astros will be in very many ninth inning of close game situations to begin with. <laughs> Jonah Carey, why does Vegas think the man on the street is uh, is thinks that Minnesota at 82 games over under is a good is a good number? I think that it might have to do with. Um, with breakdowns of divisions and, and higher profile stuff, I mean, I, it's hard to say for sure, but I'll just give you, for instance, the last year, and again, I'm, I would never be a proponent of anything, but let's say hypothetically that uh, there was a line out there that said that the Tigers were over or under 83 wins last year, and you could place gummy bears on it at the rate of uh, plus 115, which means if you bet 100 gummy bears, you could win 115. Well, someone might look at that and say, that is a pretty attractive wager. I am going to make that wager, and then lo and behold, I will win that wager at the end of the season. Not that anybody I know ever did that, but let's say that happened. <laughs> uh, worked out very well for that person. Man, I love and these gummy bears. You, I want some gummy bears now. Delicious, especially when you, uh, <laughs> you predicted just right. Oh, man, tastes even sweeter. But... Uh, I, it's, I can't prove this, but I wonder, and you know, Vegas Watch, and I follow Vegas's Watch uh, Twitter feed also. Very interesting, uh, very interesting commentary. I wonder if there's something to the idea that it's just you get into smaller markets, and maybe there's just you know there's less juice behind it. That if they overinflate the big teams to try to draw action in a certain way, and they underinflate the lower teams because maybe they feel like, oh, you're insulting the Twins, and even though I don't pay much attention to the Twins, I'm going to put some gummy bears on this because I think it's interesting. I mean, I just look at central teams, and I think they're all, the predictions are all wrong. I mean, I thought that way about the Tigers last year. I definitely feel that way about the Twins. I think that's probably the best one on the board. They're saying the Indians are going to win 73 games. So granted, the Indians did not have a good record last year, but they seem to have this history of sort of one bad year, one good year. You know, everybody overestimates them, and everybody underestimates them. And they have some good young talent. I think they're going to win more than 73 games. I just feel like the Centrals tend to have more weird things going on. I don't know if it's because they're lesser regarded teams or just people don't talk about them as much. But, you know, it's it's a consistent pattern that I've noticed for years and years. So there's got to be something going on that maybe it's more institutional rather than just the Twins in this case. Now, uh, uh, one final thing. I see that the New York Mets, Jonah, are listed at 81 wins precisely. Um, I'm going to assume that's not going to be too great for New York fans. Do you think that's pretty accurate, though? Yeah, I could see that. I mean, things could either go 
people are, are cynical and they argue that things could really, really go wrong for the Mets, horribly wrong, and they could just have a disastrous season, everybody gets fired and all that stuff. But they do still have some good players. I mean, it's a stretch to say, listen, Carlos Beltran is going to stay healthy a whole year. So is Jose Reyes. So is Johan Santana. So is but if all that stuff does go right, they have four or five guys that are legitimate superstars, and very few other teams can say that, actually. Now, you could argue about how good is their supporting cast, did they build their bullpen the right way, yada, yada. But if you just have that much frontline talent and they could just stay on the field, there's a lot to be said for things like that. And I think the other thing, just very fast to note about this, is you always have to pay attention, as someone who uh, tends to enjoy gummy bears and partaking in gummy bear exchanges, uh, that you have to pay attention to competition. So, for instance, and I, I hate to go back to the Rays all the time, but just you know, I talk about what I know, they're listed at 89.5 wins. If you put the Rays in the AL Central, I'm pretty sure they would win 95 or more. I think they're that talented. But because they have tough competition, 89.5 might be high because they're going to be facing three very, you know, certainly the Red Sox and Yankees are very good, but I would argue the Orioles are pretty good this year, too, with a chance to be 500 or better. So I think you just have to be really cognizant of that. In the case of the NL East, that could be a pretty good division this year. I like the Phillies. I like the Braves. I think they're two good teams. And the Marlins have had some recent success. So even if the Mets in a vacuum are X, because the teams that they play, they might their record might end up being Y instead. Okay, well, all this talk about gummy bears uh, has made me hungry. Uh, I'm guessing uh, you guys probably feel the same way. Uh, so I think we should shut it down and, and go stuff our faces. Um, but I, I appreciate it a lot. Uh, Dave Cameron, thank you very much, sir. Uh, no problem. It's uh, my pleasure. Okay, and uh, Jonah Carey, thank you for joining us again, and uh, I hope we can uh, we can woo you out of uh, your twindom and your uh, bookdom, um, you know, sometime down the future. Thank you very much. Carson, I'll go you one better. When this book is over, I will come to the Pacific Northwest, and I will do this over beverages. Oh, wow. Yes, I like that. that uh, that's uh, one thing I like in addition to gummy bears is uh, adult soda, I like to call it. Uh, uh, thank and, and you. So before, before, we, before we wrap up, I, I do want to say to all of our readers who may or may not enjoy Carson's writing, you actually have Jonah to blame for it. So like Jonah Carey unleashed Carson to stoolie on Fangraphs.com. So for those of you who are uh, not big fans of the 9 million words, uh, oh. post, you, can, you can blame Jonah Carey and send him an email at jonahcarey.com. Okay, yeah, and I guess blame in 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 addition to Jonah Carey, blame David Appleman for making that poor decision. It always it, it's always blame blame David Appleman. Uh, right. right, and thank you, listeners, for uh, for tolerating my voice while in while enjoying the voices of Dave Kierman and David Appleman. This has been another edition of Fangraphs Audio. Thank you for joining us. That marks another white-hot edition of Fangraphs Audio. Thank you for joining us on this particular episode. Please do prepare yourself for another episode on Wednesday, where I sit down with Mark Hewlett, Brian Smith, and Eric Manning, all Fangraphs contributors, to discuss what it might be necessary to look at for sabermetric-style prospect analysis. Again, that podcast should be available Wednesday morning. Also, uh... I would be remiss not to remind you about Second Opinion, the 2010 Second Opinion from Fangraphs. That's Fangraphs' first foray into the publishing world. Uh, That's a PDF that's available here at the site, and which gives you, in addition to the PDF, all sorts of access to information um, via the bonus blog. That is the Fangraphs' Second Opinion. Thank you once again for listening to Fangraphs Audio. Please join us on Wednesday. (laughs) 